Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us in the waiting. Speak to us in the watching, the hoping, the longing, the sorrow, the singing, and the rejoicing. Speak to us, God, by your word in these Advent days, and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. Well, the church has this important seasonal cycle. It begins on the first Sunday of Advent each year, which was last week. And the word Advent comes from this Latin word meaning arrival or coming. And so it's designed to kind of cultivate our awareness of God's actions, both past and present and future. And so today we're going to shift gears a little bit from where we were last week and take a look at John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, the one who's about to point out to us that the best thing that you can do when you're lost is to simply turn around. Now today you can drive almost anywhere in the world and it seems to me that it's nearly impossible to get lost. Waze, any Waze users out there? It's got to be, in my mind, the greatest free app ever invented. No matter where I am, no matter where I go, I can almost always count on ways to get me where I need to go. And somehow it knows almost to the minute the exact time that I'm going to arrive at my destination. Now, Waze actually ruined this entire sermon on Thursday because I got lost while using it. <laughs> so I'm going to admit that right up front. It really just threw a monkey wrench in this entire sermon. But it, it still is, it's still going to work. Now, before Waze, it was all too easy to get lost. Some people even suffer from this paralyzing driving phobia because of the fear of getting lost. There was really such a thing. In the old days before GPS, when you were driving and you got lost, you had a couple choices that were available to you. If you're a male driver, like me, you would probably refuse most of the good options available to you and just recklessly and aimlessly forge ahead, endangering the lives of your family members because you were determined to get where you were going without any outside help or interference. Yeah? Any other guys do that? I'm not the only one, right? All right, thank you, Dan, thank you. Appreciate that. Not leave me hanging, that's good. Now, if you're a female driver, you probably would consider the available options. Maybe choose to either pull over and ask for directions, something most men wouldn't be caught dead doing. Or at least, if you remember these, consulted your Thomas guy, right? Something most men won't admit to owning. Now, if John the Baptist were alive today, and he were driving without ways, and he was lost, he would reject all the old school methods, he would reject the new school methods of finding his way when lost, he wouldn't stop and ask for directions, he wouldn't consult a map, he certainly wouldn't aimlessly continue on going in the wrong direction. To Jesus' cousin John, the only smart choice that's available to you when you are lost is to simply turn around. What John the Baptist is going to remind us is even though it's hard for some of us like me to admit that even the best drivers get lost. Going in the wrong direction is part of this universal condition that we call being human. So to John, there's only one right answer. Don't waste another precious second going the wrong way. But immediately, when you find yourself lost, going in the wrong direction, turn around and just go back in the opposite direction. So listen for the direction change as you hear from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him in all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. All right. See see if you get it. The crowd turned away from John the Baptist. His his greatest rival, Floyd the Baptizer, arrived (laughs) on the scene like a superstar showing off his new River Jordans. (laughs) Everybody find Floyd? (laughs) Oh, I can't get enough of cartoons like that. (laughs) River Jordans, that's great. Those River Jordans, man, I wonder how much those things cost back in the day. John makes his scene, this appearance, kind of on the scene seemingly out of nowhere. Luke actually gives a background to John, whereas Matthew just has him kind of bursting onto the scene wearing strange clothes and eating bugs like a prophet of the Hebrew scripture. And so John's job was to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Now for centuries, God had promised Israel deliverance from her enemies. For centuries, the people of Israel experienced the oppression of one kind of evil empire after another, and for centuries, the prophets of Israel had been really quiet. Now, John would be anything but quiet. God was going to make good on his promises. God was going to deliver them and offer salvation. It was John the baptizer, not Floyd, that was going to get them ready to receive the deliverer, Jesus the Christ. And so his task here, he was, it was mostly his preaching. Where Luke stresses his baptizing, Matthew stresses his preaching and what John actually said. Loud preaching. Now, Corinne and Madison have a great friend who's like a third daughter to us. Some of you have met her. I won't use her name, though, because it'll get recorded on here and I'll get in trouble. (laughs) Whenever she's around, which up until a few months ago was every day, the volume in our house would literally go through the roof. So whenever she comes over, she joined us last week for dinner, We often lovingly remind her to use her inside voice. (laughs) Because if we don't, we're going to have to take Advil after she leaves. (laughs) John the Baptist was not a guy who had an inside voice. Rabinus, this guy in the ninth century, was a German Benedictine monk who later became an archbishop. He actually said, uh, when he was writing about John the Baptist, he said that people shout for one of three reasons. 
distance, the person being spoken to is really far away, or deafness, the people that are being spoken to are hard of hearing, or finally anger, when a person speaking becomes angry. And these are kind of the three reasons that people tend to raise their voice. In the case of John the Baptist and the people of Israel, at this very moment, I think all three of these things are actually true. The people were distant. They were hard of hearing. And John may have even been throwing a small temper tantrum. And so he raises his voice loud because he wanted to be heard. He knew that what he had to say was time-sensitive because Jesus was on his way. So John makes his appearance in the Judean wilderness. Here's a, here's a picture of it. The Judean wilderness is actually one of the few things that can be seen today almost exactly like it was 2,000 years ago. It's rocky terrain, deep ravines, little vegetation for miles and miles of just desolate land. And today in the Judean wilderness, you might run across a shepherd, an occasional camel, or the best part, Bedouin tents with satellite dishes. I think that's pretty funny. I should have got a picture of one of those. Virtually unchanged, it's the perfect place for John to escape the city. Most people only passed through this. They were on their way to somewhere else. This was not the vacation destination. And it was usually people who were kind of the nobodies, people that were on the fringes, and of course our own John the Baptist, who actually went there. And so Matthew indicates that John was fulfilling words spoken by the great prophet of Israel, Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. We heard Judy read those beautiful words earlier in the service. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight, think about this, look at that picture and hear this line. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. How in the world is a highway going to be made through that impossibly rugged desert? When Isaiah first wrote those words, he had something in mind. He had a highway running through the desert that was going to allow the exiled people of Israel to return home. That God was to come for them, take them by the hand, and lead them back home. His words were a comforting message of hope. It was kind of a homecoming message of sorts. In order to come back, through the desert highway, the first thing that they would need to do would be to turn around. John the Baptist picks up on this theme of exile and return. His message is fiery, it's loud, but it's not terribly complex. His premise is that the people of Israel were exiled, that they were lost, not because of a foreign power like Babylon or Rome, but because of the power that was far more serious far more devastating that needed to be dealt with. He is talking about the power of sin. And so people from nearby towns and cities were flocking to John in the Judean wilderness. God's world-changing plan was almost here. John knew it. The world was about to see the salvation of God in Jesus. And John's mission was to get people ready for it. And so the question is, is how do we prepare for the coming of the Lord? John would simply say, turn around. Turn around. It's, to him, it might be that simple. With a sense of real urgency, John is begging 
these people to turn their lives around. That more than anything else in the world, they simply needed a change of direction. And he uses the word repent. This is one of those times where words are actually very important. The Greek word for repent translates a Hebrew word, teshub, which means, you guessed it, turn around or come back. So repent in the Bible is more than just a change of mind or a change of opinion. It's changing the entire direction of one's life. John's convinced that God was about to pay us a visit and that with the coming of God and Jesus would be the arrival of what the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom was coming whether or not people made any changes in their lives. In other words, we don't bring about the kingdom, but we can make a decision. We can choose to turn and face it, or we can choose to turn our backs to it. This is what John desperately wanted people to know. God's whole new world is coming, so turn around and face it. Don't turn your back on it. Prepare yourself. Get yourself cleaned up for the visit. Make the necessary changes in your life. Start living for God now before it's too late. So John's preaching had a strong effect on people. This kind of revival breaks out. People felt this real deep sense of their own sin, their own unworthiness, and they wanted to know, what do we do about this feeling? And so John offered them this public bath. John offered them baptism. Repentant baptism was how John said we could get ready for God's visitation. It's how we can be prepared for the coming kingdom of God, because when people confess their sins and they're baptized, they get this saving help from God. And so, Matthew, this is surprising to me, but when we read that story, he actually never uses the word sin at all, but it's certainly implied. The remedy for sin is not in denying it. It's not in explaining it away or pointing the finger of blame elsewhere. But what he's saying simply is that sin is remitted where sin is admitted. That we're freed from it only when we turn around and face it. He's in line with the writer of the uh, book of Proverbs who wrote these words, No one who conceals his transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them is the one who obtains mercy. And so God is looking for honesty, an admission that we don't, always live as we ought to, that we get lost, that we make a mess of things by our own poor choices. My parents always taught my brother and I to admit our mistakes. They always promised us, any parents in here or kids that are listening, they always promised us that it would be better to tell the truth when we had done something wrong, because if we got caught and we lied about it, the consequences would be doubled, right? Now, I can't explain it. And I don't understand why this is true, but that is a really, really hard message for a kid to understand. I did not understand. And I'm not sure kids always believe their parents when they tell them that honesty is the best policy. Even as kids, we come to believe that people don't really mean what they say. Maybe the fear of any kind of punishment at all just causes us to not want to reveal the truth about ourselves to anyone else, or to God. I remember there was one Saturday morning, I was going to pick on my brother, didn't show up to me. I usually pick on myself, but this one I'm going to get him. 
<laughs> so I'll have to refer him to the website. He has a good sense of humor, so he'd be able to take it. He'd remember this one real well, too. There was this one Saturday morning where we snuck downstairs early because we like to watch cartoons. The rule was, don't wake up Dad on Saturday morning early, right? Because uh, he's traveling, he gets home late, goes to bed, he needs this little bit of sleep. And uh, so we sneak downstairs, and the thing we see, this box of powdered donuts sitting on the counter. Man, they look good, presumably for him when he got up, all right? And so we're watching cartoons or whatever. My dad gets up, he comes downstairs, and he noticed that his powdered donuts were gone. He called my brother and I into the kitchen. He asked us which one of us, or both of you, uh, who ate the donuts? We both adamantly said we had not eaten My dad gave us another chance, saying what parents always say, it's going to be much better for you if you just admit to eating them than if you lie about it too and compound the problem, making a second mistake on top of the first one, but still, vehemently, both of us are like, we did not eat these donuts. We have no idea what happened to them. I'm like incredulous. I I, beside myself because I thought my brother sitting with me watching cartoons. I didn't see him take them. My dad goes on his way, probably to do a little investigating. He must have searched our rooms because a short while later, he calls my brother upstairs. My dad's waiting for him in his bedroom when my brother arrived, and he said, what's this? And he pointed to something on the windowsill. My brother, of course, was speechless. There were white powdered sugar crumbs all over the windowsill where he sat eating one after the other, gazing out his bedroom window. I was off the hook for the moment, but my dad was right. It would have been better had he admitted what he had done when he had the two chances. John the Baptist, this is what he wants us to understand. Believe it or not. John wants us to believe God, to trust God, to have faith in God when God says that when we confess our sins, we will obtain mercy. The good news is is that God offers help to those who want to change, for those who are willing to turn around. And John looks out and he sees the religious leaders of his days, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who had also come out to the wilderness to see what was going on. And John had some really strong language for them at the end of our text. Because he believes that they've come in insincerity. They're not coming in honesty to admit that they too need this cleansing that John was offering. This really forgiveness that God was offering. But to look down on the Pharisees, to look down on the Sadducees, is to miss Matthew's point. To miss the point of why he's sharing the story in the first place, that we need to see ourselves in the mirror. When we hear the term, you brood of vipers, we need to revisit our own pride in anything that might get in the way of admitting our own shortcomings. So I'll leave you with something that I found really fascinating that I learned. Up to this point, Israel had only baptized Gentile proselytes who were converted to Judaism because they were viewed as being unclean and in need of a good baptismal scrubbing. But John's wild and crazy message is that even the insiders, including the religious leaders themselves, they all needed to be baptized. They all needed a change of direction, a change of behavior, 
They too needed to turn around and face the coming kingdom of God. And so do we. Because this is how we get ready for the birth of Jesus. God in the flesh this Christmas. We need the crazy cousin John to point the way, to help us get prepared for God's visit. The moment when salvation would arrive in the birth of baby Jesus. Even the best drivers get lost once in a while. Part of what it means to be human is to find ourselves going in the wrong direction. And John simply reminds us that every minute is precious, that we don't have any time to waste. And the counterintuitive message is that the way forward is to turn around, to face the coming kingdom of heaven, because it's in the turning around that God promises we obtain mercy. It's the turning around in repentance that we will make ourselves ready for Christmas Day. Amen.